Well, good morning. So, one other thing I wanted to just make note of is we have our, uh, our new monthly prayer sheet that's out for you to pick up. I know from talking with many of you and from our Bible studies and others that there are many more prayer requests that make it into our monthly uh, prayer sheet and trust that you're adding those to it and continuing to pray for one another and lift one another up. But we put this out and I encourage you to take time to think about it, maybe even think about prayer requests you can add to it, because it is a tremendous blessing, and I can say this very personally, to know and to be aware of the fact that others are praying for you, to check on one another, to encourage one another. So please make use of that resource. It is more valuable than you may realize. Well, we will be continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, but if you've already turned to Matthew, don't lose your spot. I'm going to have you take a left. We're going to start in the Old Testament. And we're going to start where you were, at least in the book you were last week while I was absent, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. So if you'll turn there this morning, I want to read what is a very familiar passage if you've spent much time in the church. It's a passage that's often taught, that's often, that appears on everything from cards to as I was made aware of this morning, bookmarks. I came up this morning and Nora was sitting there reading a passage of scripture. I asked what it was. And she said, it's on my bookmark. And it was the very one we were opening with. And uh, I thought that was sweet. But it's Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. There is, I think, a tendency that we have to want to understand everything, to make sense of everything, to be right about everything. And you might be thinking, well, that's rather obvious. Who wants to be wrong about everything? Fair enough. But what I'm really getting at is that because we want to understand everything, there are times that we will struggle to believe or to practice or to trust something we do not fully understand. And this begins when we're children, doesn't it? Mom or dad ask us to do something, and our response is... Why? Why must I do that? And after the 1,366th time or so, mom and dad may resort to something along the lines of, because I told you so. Or just trust me. And you must then make a choice, right? Do you love your mom and dad enough to trust them, even when it doesn't make sense? Even when you don't understand? This morning, and you can turn back to Matthew chapter 17, we pick up with a similar encounter or experience in the history of Jesus' disciples. A voice from heaven has come down saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. All of the disciples were struggling, Peter perhaps the most, at accepting what Jesus had told them back in chapter 16, that he must suffer and die. This didn't fit their theological expectations. 
Now they've encountered a voice from heaven, at least these three, Peter, James, and John, telling them to listen to Jesus, to my beloved Son. And a decision is now before them. Will they trust the Lord? Or will they try to lean on their own understanding? Will they try to be wise in their own eyes? Or will they accept that which they do not fully yet understand? Let's look together this morning. This passage from Matthew 17 is we come down the Mount of Transfiguration and eavesdrop a bit on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 17, we read, As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? It's a funny question. We're going to get to that. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've already had together this morning, encouraging one another, rejoicing with one another, singing praises to you with one another. Thank you for the time of remembrance as we remember the death, the sacrifice, the payment for sins that was given on the cross. And now as we open up your word, Father, help us to humble ourselves, to submit to your teaching, to your instruction. Father, pray that we would be quick to hear, quick to obey, quick to apply your word in our lives. Help us to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. We thank you for your spirit who works in us and amongst us. Helps guide us and lead us into all truth. In your name, amen. Well, it's been a couple weeks, and this is part three of the Sermon on the Mount. We went up, we had a meeting, and now we're coming down. So a quick recap on just what has preceded these verses is probably helpful. You remember that Jesus went up on the mount. The mount that is almost certainly Mount Hermon, the highest precipice, the highest of the mountains surrounding Israel. This time it would have been in Galilee territory, in Gentile territory. Upon reaching a high place on the mount, whether it was the pinnacle or not, we don't know, but it was certainly one of the high places on that mount. His face and garment, that is Jesus's, were transfigured, transformed into a brilliant, radiant light that shone forth. Description that is almost identical to the Old Testament descriptions when persons encounter the angel of the Lord. A very similar description to what we find in, Jesus's, in John's description of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ in Revelation. Then, while transfigured in this brilliant white, he was suddenly joined by two persons. You remember who they were, right? It was Moses. And Elijah, 
One who summed up the law and the other summed up the prophets. That is all of the Old Testament. Testifying together that this is the Christ, the Messiah, and everything that He has said and had done. And you may remember that they discussed His coming exodus or departure from this earth and its attendant suffering and sacrifice. Now more was said that day up on the mount. But Peter, James, and John were overcome with sleep. So we don't know what else was said. Maybe one day we can ask. They did wake in time to see all three of them again. It was in time for Peter and perhaps a little bit of a groggy state to offer his efforts in building booths or temporary shelters for each of them. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it was in this understanding, this eschatological understanding and expectation that at the end of the ages, all of the nations of the earth would come together and celebrate in this feast of booths or tabernacles and worship the Lord. And so they wanted to see, Peter specifically wanted to begin, he said, now must be the time, let's usher in the kingdom of God. Peter wasn't able to finish speaking, he was interrupted by a great cloud that descended upon them. And a voice spoke from the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And you remember the response of Peter, James, and John. They just gotten up from the sleep and they went down again in fear and in worship. Until Jesus walked over and touched them. And so graciously and gently lifts them up and says, Do not be afraid. And they were standing once again alone with Christ, no longer in his transfigured state. And after experiencing this life-altering event, they began their descent. And as they began their descent, Jesus starts speaking to them in verse 9. This is where we get to eavesdrop a bit. Jesus tells them they must keep everything that they just witnessed, the most amazing thing they have witnessed in their earthly lives to themselves, for a period of time. I don't know about you, but I have a hard enough time keeping gifts a secret and surprises a secret. But to keep this a secret? To not be able to tell anyone? Well, that would have been very hard indeed. And we've seen this instruction before, haven't we? Regarding other events in Jesus' life. In fact, one very recently in Matthew chapter 16. After Peter declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. <clears throat> Remember what Jesus said is, tell no one. Tell no one. Again, until the suffering, death, and resurrection. And while we've talked about there is some variation in the motivation, because there were other times Jesus has says, do not share this. There is some variation in why this instruction occurs, but there's also a great deal of continuity in the reason why it's given. And really, if we stop and consider for a moment, it's really not difficult to understand why they needed to keep silent. Imagine for a second, you have a people who are oppressed, who are languishing under Rome, under their own cruel and onerous religious leaders, yearning for the Messiah, expecting the Messiah longing for the Messiah to come to establish his kingdom and to reign and to rule and to throw off the bonds of Rome. Well, they've witnessed the miracles of Jesus. 
They've heard the teachings of Jesus. They've heard Him say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What would they have done if they had heard about the glorification that had just taken place, the transfiguration that had just taken place? That He had been there with Moses and Elijah. Most likely, there would have been a violent political coup attempt. Believing that they were ushering in, rightly ushering in, the reign of the Messiah. Misunderstanding so grievously the timing of God. Because what was missing from their eschatology, and at this point even the eschatology, that is the end times understanding of the disciples, is that Jesus must first suffer and die. And so they must wait. They must hold in this wonderful event, this life-altering event that was ingrained upon them until their deaths. But this concept that Jesus must first suffer and die takes really the forefront in this discussion that takes place as they descend the mount. Not so much the keeping in as it is the suffering and dying. Because it was a difficult concept to grasp. Peter and the disciples have been struggling with it for now for probably a couple of weeks, going on a couple of weeks. And so the real question before them is this. They don't understand it. Will they trust and obey? In fact, Mark tells us in Mark 9 that these three seized upon the statement, rise from the dead, and they discussed at length what this could mean. Now, you might want to stop here and ask, what do you mean they discussed at length what this could mean? How many meanings could it have? How many different meanings are there to suffer, die, rise from the dead? It seems pretty obvious. Why would they discuss this particular statement? Why was this such an issue to them? Well, it was an issue because they still couldn't accept that Jesus had to die. They struggled with this. It did not fit their preconceived notions, their, pre, their, their current theological understanding. It didn't work. It didn't fit the theological framework they were working from. And so they wanted to find some other meaning because the alternative was too horrible to contemplate. So perhaps they might have reasoned this was figurative. It was not literal. In their discussions, this may have been perhaps one of the things they discussed. It doesn't really mean die. Maybe it's more like die in the way that a caterpillar dies and becomes a butterfly. It's figuratively dying. And so they discussed it because it didn't align with their understanding. And as they continued to discuss and interact over this statement that they had seized upon, the discussion resulted in a rather interesting line of questioning that they raised with Jesus. Because in the next verse, in verse 10, they ask a question about Elijah and a restoration promised by the prophet Malachi. In verse 10, the disciples refer to the teaching of the scribes. Now, who are the scribes? Well, the scribes in Israel, they were considered the ultimate authority on the interpretation of the Old Testament. They were the ones who studied it the hardest, studied it the most. They were the ones you went to if you needed understanding on the Old Testament. Now, at this point, you realize there's a lot of people to keep track of. You've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, you've got the scribes, you've got the Sanhedrin. There's a lot of groups. 
But they're all different. Some scribes are Pharisees, but not all Pharisees are scribes. So the scribes are a unique group. They are the Old Testament scholars. So they're appealing here to the theological experts, that is the disciples. They're appealing to these theological experts on the Old Testament. And these experts had taught that Elijah must come first. First what? First before the Messiah's reign. Before the Messiah comes. And not only will this Elijah come, but this Elijah will restore all things. And that's pretty straightforward. That's all well and good. But what is unclear is this. I mean, that makes sense. We can understand, okay, that was a teaching by the scribes. But what in the world does that have to do with the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus needing to suffer and die? Why is this the question that they ask? How is a discussion of a new Elijah and the restoration of all things pertinent to the suffering and death of the Messiah? Well, to understand that, you really have to appreciate the theological acumen of the disciples at this point. You see, we sometimes give them a hard time, don't we? Why couldn't they have gotten that? Why do they have such little faith? I mean, if I stepped out of the boat and was standing on water, I wouldn't have sunk. But they really had a wonderful understanding of Scripture in the Old Testament. So much so that they were struggling because they, they were trying to rectify it. They, they had all of the Old Testament running through their minds, all the teaching that they had heard from the scribes, and they wanted to understand. If Elijah arrives before the Messiah, and everything is first restored, and all is made right, then how could it possibly be that the Messiah must die? It's a very thoughtful question. Because they're right. If the restoration of all things takes place, then it doesn't make any sense at all for the Messiah to suffer and die because if everyone's been restored, there's no wicked people to do the killing and the suffering. So they're really asking several questions here. If you, Jesus, are really the Messiah, then there must be an Elijah, right? And if there is an Elijah, where's the restoration? And if there must be an Elijah, and if there's a restoration then how could you possibly suffer and die? And since this must happen, then surely you don't actually mean suffer and die, right? I mean, you can see their minds turning. You can see these questions racing through their mind and the question we have before us. You can see them struggling to accept and believe what they did not fully understand, what didn't align with their theological understanding. Let's pause here for a moment and just contemplate for a second. Does that happen to you sometimes in your study of Scripture? You encounter a passage and it doesn't fit, or at least you don't see how it fits. You really have two options at that point, don't you? One is, you can go the route of saying, well, the Scripture contradicts itself. The other option is to recognize that I, that you, are imperfect interpreters. It's a wonderful reminder in time to remember the words of Christ that He's given His Spirit to help us to understand and to guide us into truth. And it takes time. It doesn't all come at once. 
And so we need to remember to submit to the authority of Scripture. We may not always understand it. The other thing is very hard. It's very hard. It's to be willing to say, I don't know. We don't like those words, do we? When someone comes to us and asks a question, that's when it's particularly hard to say, I don't know, because they seem to imply, they think, they expect that you have an answer. Surely you've studied enough. You've thought enough about this. You've, you've thought about And it's very tempting to want to try and give some sort of answer. But to instead be able to say, I don't know. Let's study it together. Let's encourage one another. Let's reason together. That's where we should turn. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we encourage participation. That's why we try to make them interactive and engage with one another and talk through Scripture together. Because there are going to be times where we don't understand. But we don't give up. Well, Jesus answers their very thoughtful question in verse 11. And what's interesting is he does not contradict the scribes or the disciples here. But he first affirms them. However, we have to pay careful attention. And here's a good Bible study reminder. Pay attention to verb tenses. Because we have to pay very careful attention to the language that is used in this affirmation in verse 11. See, Jesus answers and says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Really, a better way to translate that, it's, it's what's called the middle present indicative here. A better way to translate that is, yes, Elijah comes. Yes, Elijah comes. And then we have the future. And he will restore all things. Jesus first uses the present middle followed by the future. And several commentators have noted that the two different verb tenses seem to imply two phases to Elijah's ministry, a distinction that Jesus really makes clearer as he continues. But before we go forward, it's going to be helpful to go backward. Because what is this restoration of all things Jesus is talking about? To answer this, we need to turn to the prophet Malachi. So if you would, turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament of our English Bibles. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, so you should only have to take a short left and you're there. If you get to start seeing other names you can't pronounce, like Zephaniah, Haggai, or Obadiah, you've gone too far. Malachi chapter 4. I'm going to read all of it. It's just six verses. Interestingly, in our English Bibles, it's a separate chapter. In the Hebrew Old Testament, this is just the continuation of chapter 3. And it really does flow very well together. But we're going to read just chapter 4 in our English Bibles. Beginning of verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. 
even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Notice here, by the way, the combination of Moses and Elijah. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Notice there the use of the word restore. You see, these are the all things that Jesus was describing in Matthew 17, all the things described in Malachi 4 or alluded in Malachi 4. And really, we would have to do a much more thorough investigation of the Old Testament to understand the implication of all things because the prophets continue to build upon one another and use words, phrases, and statements to draw in the connotation from those other passages. But we can summarize this morning. So what are those things? First off, what I find absolutely fascinating is that of all the examples God have given, has given or could have given about what righteousness and faithfulness looks like, what does he choose? To end out and close out the entirety of the Old Testament, what example does he choose? It's the turning of fathers to children and children to fathers. Honestly, it's quite unexpected. Or used to language of a new and restored heart with regard to the new covenant, this language is very unique. It certainly feeds from those other passages. Passages like Ezekiel 11, verses 19 through 21, where I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Or Ezekiel 36, where it says, I will sprinkle, in verse 25, clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Or Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And a chapter later in Jeremiah 32, they shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. So we're used to language about the heart and the cleansing and the purification, especially tied around the new covenant and the coming of the kingdom of God. But what does it mean that the hearts of fathers turn toward their children and children to their fathers? And why is that significant? Well, first off, one of the greatest indications of, wicked, of a wicked nation and a wicked society is the disintegration of families. When families fall apart, when fathers do not love and care for their children, when they abdicate their responsibility to love and to lead and to care for their children, to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And we won't belabor this too long, but it would, I would be remiss if I did not at least ask the question of the father sitting here this morning. How are you doing in this area? Are you working hard to cultivate a love for God amongst your children? Are you demonstrating for them the importance of the body of Christ? Is the worship of God, the study of God, the fellowship of the saints and church a clear priority to you and your family? Has your heart turned toward your children to see them grow in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? 
Are you concerned more with their grades, their success in this world, their success in sports, or with their sanctification before the judge of this world? The wickedness of this world can also be observed in the hearts of children, in disobedience, hatred, and disdain, of grown children who will not care for aging parents, of young children who disobey and demonstrate arrogance toward their parents. And so it's in light of these things that Malachi notes one of the most outwardly demonstrable effects of the new hearts that we see in Ezekiel, we see in Jeremiah. Again, that's an inward change. One of the most outward demonstrable events that's going to take place from these new hearts is that the Lord is, gives a love of father for children and children for father the way it's supposed to be. This is a specific but very clear indication of what the prophets mean when they describe the return of faithfulness to God's statutes, to the obedience of what God has commanded. And so this restoration of all things is a restoration of the heart. It alludes to what the prophets have been talking about in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and so many others. And it would have a clear outward demonstration of that inward transformation that takes place. The all things then refers to all that surround these events. The Old Testament also describes judgment. We read that at the beginning of Malachi 4. A return to the land of worshiping God by all the peoples. And the expectation is that this new Elijah will usher in the kingdom of God where righteousness rules both inwardly and outwardly. That's what the scribes have been teaching. Big picture, Elijah's coming, the Messiah's going to follow, but he's going to usher in this time of rejoicing that leads to the Messiah's reign. And so this is the brief summary of the backdrop, the theological basis for the disciples' question and Jesus' response. But Jesus is not done. After saying that this Elijah, yes, he comes and will bring about these things, he goes on in verses 12 through 13, and this is where it perhaps gets more confusing before it gets clearer. Jesus continues in verse 12 and says, But Elijah already came. You missed it. Here's the answer to the disciples were not expecting. I mean, you can just see the look on their faces. What do you mean he already came? I don't see any wholesale heart turning going on. If anything, I see the opposite. I don't see this reign of righteousness that's supposed to follow Elijah. How could he have already come? Where is the restoration of all these things? Jesus, you just said Elijah comes and restores all these things. Now you said he did come. Where is it? Jesus continues. They did not recognize him. They did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Interestingly, at this point, the disciples too can be identified as those that did not recognize him. They may not have abused him, but they did not recognize him. Then in verse 13, we read, the disciples then understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, that seems to be quite a leap if they haven't understood anything up to this point. But the pieces began to click into place. Because back in chapter 11 in, of Matthew, in verse 14, Jesus had said, if you are willing to accept it, what? 
John himself is Elijah who was to come. But even before that, it was prophesied that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Before Jesus came, before Jesus was born, there was an event that took place in the temple one morning, one day, with the father of John the Baptist. He was in there worshiping, offering sacrifices, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And began speaking to him. We read in verse 14. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. That is John the Baptist. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn away many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And then notice this. Really, it's an explanation. And it should align with what we've already said. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Notice that interpretation the angel of the Lord gives really to Malachi 4.6 when he summarizes that the turning of the hearts of the father to the children and the children to the father is a sign of the disobedient being given the attitude of the righteous, a transformation of the heart. That affirms what we said a moment ago. The disciples now understood that Jesus speaks of John the Baptist. But there's something else implied here. That there is a two-part preparation by the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Well, where do you get that? It's because he said Elijah has already come. And he says there is still yet to be the restoration of all things. There's no other solution. There has to be two times involved. It was not all at once. The scribes were not wrong. They were just incomplete. The disciples are not wrong. They just not fully understand. John prepared the way for Jesus in more ways than one. He prepared the way the people for the preaching of the Messiah. He also ignited the anger of the religious leaders so they were intent on murdering the Son of God. The first part of preparation was a hardening of Israel so that the gospel would go into the whole world. The second part, what is yet to come. What Jesus speaks of is yet future in verse 11 when he describes restoration of all things. That is still coming. But Jesus doesn't explain a lot more detail here. Or if he does, we don't get to see it. And I tend to think he didn't explain much more that day because he continues to go on explaining to the disciples throughout the rest of the Gospels. The disciples now recognize that Jesus spoke of John the Baptist, but there's no indication that they yet understood everything this means. It's like when the optometrist puts that big thing in front of your face and he starts to say, is it better or is it worse? Is it better? Is it worse? It gets clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And so Jesus begins to drop information to them to begin making it clearer for them. And so the question that really remains to be seen, 
Because this is where we wrap up. Will they trust and obey? Will they believe and follow Jesus even when they do not fully understand? They now understand that John the Baptist came first. They understand there's two parts. But as we will see, they still didn't fully grasp the suffering and death. But will they believe even though they do not fully understand? That's our question this morning. Maybe we have much better insight into this because we're able to look back a little over 2,000 years. But as the writer and theologian Amy Hall notes, between our own sinfulness and our lack of knowledge about God and his world and the influence of the culture, we are all susceptible to thinking we're a better judge of what is good than God is. And if you are following Jesus, a time will inevitably come when you'll have to choose to follow one of his commands recorded in Scripture, even though you don't understand why it is commanded. I think we can all empathize with that. There have all been times we've come to the realization that the application or the direct command from God's word doesn't fit with what I want to do, doesn't seem to fit with where I'm at, but it's clear nonetheless. And so the question is will you obey? She goes on to say, even though you don't understand why it's commanded, a time where you'll need to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding. Now this sounds all well and good, but how do we do this? How do I trust God when I don't understand? I don't understand the circumstances. I don't understand how I'm supposed to trust him when it's this hard. I don't understand how I'm supposed to not be anxious when everything seems to be falling apart around me. I don't understand how I'm supposed to trust him when my child seems to have abandoned the faith. Well, let's go back to the analogy of a parent with their child. If that child has been loved and cared and protected by their parent, they are much more likely to obey and trust even when they don't know why. But how do you feel this love, this care, and this protection? That's the right question to ask. The answer is to slow down and look around you. One of the reasons we struggle to feel the love and care of God is that we fail to give thanks and recognize where he has cared for us in the past. If we are not a thankful people, we will be a forgetful people. If we are not a thankful people, we will be a forgetful people and a despondent people and a depressed people. If we do not stop and say thank you, if we do not take time to remember the faithfulness of God, then we will struggle to trust and obey. This is why we practice communion regularly. What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Remember. He's not just saying remember my name or remember that there's a Jesus. That's not, no, it's much more specific. Remember that I lived amongst you. Remember that I lived a perfect life. Remember that in my sinlessness, I took your sin on the cross. I bore the payment, the penalty, the wrath of God in your place if you will but trust and obey. And if we can remember that and really believe that Jesus sacrificed himself for us, 
that his blood was given for me, then how can I not trust someone who has laid down their life for me? For those of you who are sitting here with your parents, you still sometimes struggle to obey them, to do everything they say, maybe a lot of times. Think about your attitude towards them. Do you always love your, show your parents love and appreciation? If you struggle to love and obey your parents, I encourage you to take the time to think and remember all that they do for you, the time they spend with you, the ways they fed you, they've nurtured you, they've cared for you. You need to practice remembering too. But even more than this, you don't obey them because they deserve it. You obey them because God, the one who made you, the one who loves you, who has sent his son to die for you, has told you to do that. But you need to decide how you will respond. But here's the hard part, and this applies to every one of us in this room, that if you are not a child of God, it will be nearly impossible to trust and obey. If you have not repented of your sins, if you have not called out to Jesus to forgive you, then it will be almost impossible to trust and obey. So if you have not done that, then the, the plea to you this morning is to call out to Jesus, to the one who loves you, who offered himself as a sacrifice for you, who bled and died in your place, who will one day return as judge, who will one day return as king, and at that point, it will be too late. So do not delay. For the rest of us, we need to continue building the habit of remembering what the Lord has done, giving thanks to Him for what He has done, praying, seeing that answered prayer, and thanking Him over and over again. Because that will cultivate within us a trust and a reliance upon Him so that when we come to places in Scripture and to circumstances in lives that we do not understand, we will be able to lean not on our own understanding, but on what He has said. And instead of asking why, we will say, yes, sir, and obey. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is so faithful to guide us and instruct us. Father, we're thankful for texts like this and messages like this that help to remind us that we do not understand everything, that we need to rely on you and not lean on our own understanding. Help us to do that. In your name, amen.